Let's get underway, sir. Full steam ahead. Today is Sunday, November 4th, 2018, time for episode 66 of the Barnhart Podcast. Episode 65 is done, and we got a little bit of feedback from that one. One I wanted to mention really quick, we were talking about the the uh, abortion protesters, prayerful witness folks who uh, have the, I refer to them as gory, gruesome signs. I am apparently very much in the minority. One person contacted me via Twitter saying, I, I agree with you, but I got several notes saying, no, no, no you're totally wrong. Those, those uh, gruesome photos actually work to convince people those are babies, not just clumps of cells. So I guess you're in the majority on this one, Anne. Yeah, I, I think so. But the on the other hand, also, um, another point that needs to be conceded and remind, and remind everyone of is how effective these... Um, these really high tech sonograms they have now are. And I think a couple people made the point via email to me that um, not only does that work, having, having a woman, giving a woman a sonogram, showing her the baby, and then saying, why don't you think about this for 24 or 48 hours? People have tried to legislate this in and get laws passed saying that, you know, abortion mills, abortion slaughterhouses by law have to give a woman a sonogram and then there has to be a 24 to 48 hour waiting period. And why do you think that the baby killers are just absolutely dripping, foaming at the mouth, enraged by this and fight this tooth and nail? Because I think one of the emails that I got, you, I don't know if it was addressed to podcast or not, I can't remember, but it said it was like 75% effective. Three out of every four women that you just give a simple sonogram to, um, once once they saw the baby, well, then that was, you know, the whole the whole uh, idea of, of slaughtering the child just went up in smoke. Um, and that's just for a simple sonogram. They have these four four D sonograms now where, you know, the image itself is three dimensional and the image is, is moving. So that's the fourth dimension. That's why they call it fourth four D um, three dimensions plus time. And apparently that's just, you know, that's just mind blowing. You think that, you know, kind of the sonograms that we're all used to seeing, kind of the fuzzy and well, oh, there's the head. Oh, yeah, I can see the head. And there's the outline of the of the little face and the nose. And there's this and there's that. And you think that's compelling. Try looking at one of these four dimensional images. And, you know, of course, the, the, the baby killers want all of that suppressed don't do it. They just want to get as many women in there and get as many dead babies as they possibly, possibly can. And now we all know, thanks to the good work of, you know, the people who have been exposing this with all the hidden cameras and threatened with jail and everything, we now know that they, it, this is a massive, massive organ trafficking um, business that these people are in. Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars changing hands for these little uh, slaughtered baby body parts that they're using that are being used in all kinds of um, illicit medical medical research and so forth. So, yes, the gore, the gory pictures do work. And what's also very effective that we can't forget is the sonogram thing. So always continue to push that. 
Well, when somebody has a crisis pregnancy, and I'm just completely thinking about what makes sense, I'm not a female, I've never had a crisis pregnancy, I'm just, you know, I'm talking out of my left ear, apparently. But I can see where somebody who thinks, hey, this is a problem I need to fix, and then they see a sonogram of what of a recognizable human being with a recognizable heartbeat mm-hmm. and shape, and they, in the, I can't imagine the realization, whether you were thinking of abortion or not, the emotional rush that must happen for a woman when you realize there is another life inside of me. That is completely yeah. dependent upon me. I, I can see where that would alone would make a massive change of heart for a lot of people. And I, I did get a few emails taking issue with my saying that uh, outlawing abortion won't end it. Um, it wasn't abortion wasn't exactly legal before 1973. It wasn't exactly illegal either. It just wasn't legislated in a lot of areas. It was illegal under penalty of death in the Vatican and in, in the papal states in the 18th century, but it still happened. My point in saying that is, yes, while making it illegal with death penalty and all the penalties that can go along with it would curtail it to a certain degree. Ultimately, you have to meet the person who is trying to uh, solicit or or offer an abortion and change their hearts. The only way you can totally eradicate this is to change the minds of the people who would either offer or solicit this and would would outlawing it on on the books help reduce abortion yes but it'll also drive it underground which you know the the leftists will say oh then they go to unsafe uh, abortion uh, back alley stuff hello look at the gosnell film that's out in theaters right now Legal abortion is no safer than back alley abortions right now. Look at and Gosnell is not the exception. Legal abortion yeah. is not done in surgically sterile environments. I, I remember in Missouri a few years back, they passed a law saying that abortion abortionists had to be in a medical medical surgical grade facility, which basically outlawed all but one. Uh, would have outlawed, I don't know if they passed that or not, it would have eliminated abortion in Missouri in all but one location. Mm-hmm. And the point was, you are doing a surgical procedure. The the um, the, the conservatives in Missouri were saying, okay, fine, you, you, we're going to take you at your word, you know, to the degree that any, any abortion can be taken at their word. You say mm-hmm. this is a simple surgical procedure. You shall meet all the, all, all the requirements for a surgical facility. And, of course, they went ape as a result of that because they're not actually involved in the truth there. It's a satanic situation. It is. And to your point that there were abortions before, yes, they were. Um, I think a lot of people don't know. I found this out just not too terribly long ago. Frank Sinatra's mother, her... um, she was born in Italy, and then, of course, they immigrated over, and he was born in New Jersey or wherever it was. And her nickname around town in New Jersey was Hatpin Dolly. And what that was a reference to is that she was a midwife, but she would also perform abortions. And she would use, she would use a hat pin to puncture the amniotic sac and thus induce abortion. Um, that's the kind, that's the kind of thing that was going, women would do it to themselves. Women would self puncture. That's, and that's kind of the euphemism for, um, coat hangers. You see a lot of times they use, um, pro baby killers use the, the image of a coat hanger on their sign. And what's that, what that is referencing is that people would take coat hangers. Women would take wire coat hangers on, you know, unwrap, 
unravel and straighten the coat hanger out and then use that. And sometimes women would do it to themselves and use that to self puncture the amniotic sac and induce abortion. Um, so yeah, what pe- people were doing this, but that that's what people had to do. You had to go slink off to some psychopath like Frank Sinatra's mother, um, and have her do it or even worse, do it to yourself. And of course, of course, women would die as a result of that. Of course they would. Um, but also many times they wouldn't. Um, and it, it went on, but it was a, it was a risky thing. I remember being told a, an anecdote or a story um, when I was a child about someone in, in the local, the local area who was, you know, people who were born at the turn of the century, um, married in abusive marriages, but, you, you know, divorce was just absolutely off the table as, as it should be. But, you know, even separating was completely off the table. And so, so-and-so woman got pregnant. Husband said, nope, absolutely not. I want to, I want you to, you take care of it, meaning you self-abort. And I want to see the remnants of this in the tub when I get back from work today. And if you don't do it, I'll do it. And what that meant was he would punch her in the stomach. And so, yeah, there were absolutely times when women were put into that situation. Either you do this or your husband is basically going to try to kill you. Um, but that's, that is a testament to, and again, this was a completely Protestant Freemasonic, um, basically atheistic, um, atheistic culture where people just went to church because, because it was just for show, because you had to be seen going to church. Obviously, these people were not believing in any way. Um, other anecdotes about, you know, people in the early to mid 20th century, you know, people going to other family members and saying, look, I need a hundred bucks or whatever it was, which was a lot of money in cash back then. You know, I need to go to the big city and need to go find this, this abortionist and, and get rid of this baby. And it it did happen. Concede the point. Don't, don't stick your head in the sand and say this never happened. But again, that's a testimony to how far gone that culture was and how far gone those people were that that kind of crap was going on. Um, And yes, there were husbands who were absolute bastards who would give that ultimatum. Either you do it yourself or I'll do it. And if I do it, it's going to be a lot, lot worse on you. Um, So yeah, there you go. What, you know, the, the culture needs to be converted to Christ. And, you know, if something like that happens and the woman um, you know, it comes to light that the woman was basically in, you know, it, it almost has a musloid type of a, uh, a quality to it. You know, either you do this or I'm basically going to attempt to kill you. Um, you know, the fact that there just aren't any penalties for a man who does that, or you, you there's a culture where you can't really enforce that sort of a law the the answer to all of this is getting back to what we were talking about and i think what what um what brought about the the emails that you and i both saw where people were saying well super nerd you know you can't you can't say that xyz is never going to happen 
the answer to all of this is getting it back to where procuring an abortion is a capital offense. And then when these things happen, we can sit down and we can figure out where the culpability lies. But if both the woman and a man, the, the husband, father, whatever it is, or even sometimes it's parents, are in any way involved in coercing, facilitating, paying for, procuring anything. Anyone who is involved in this, just as if someone went and took out a, a, a mafia contract to have someone assassinated. Whoever's involved in that, whoever pays for it, whoever um, enjoins it, coerces it, whatever, you are an accessory. You are an accessory and you're an accessory to premeditated first degree murder. And so and then we figure out where where maximum cult culpability lies, where if the woman is put in a position where it's either you do this or I'm going to basically kill you by doing it myself, I'm going to punch you in the stomach. Um, obviously this is why we have judges and why we adjudicate things. But what you have to start from is the base premise that this is a premeditated first degree murder. This is a capital crime and then go, you know, figure out who's at fault and then punish the guilty, punish the guilty. And if you're, if you just throw up your hands and say, we're not even going to start from that, we're not even going to start from that base premise. Okay. What, what are you standing on? You know, that's kind of my point. You've got to start from some sort of a foundation. If you start from the from this nebulous and and I think it's kind of an an irrational foundation that well we we have this person who has been murdered in a cold calculated premeditated brutal way, but the the crime of premeditated first degree murder is nowhere on the table. We're not going to go after the doctor. We're not going to go after the mother. We're not going to go after any other accessories to this crime. Then what are you doing? I mean, what 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 legal foundation are you even standing on? So I think you have to go back down to the base, identify what exactly is going on here, what crime is being committed. We all know what crime is being committed. Okay, we know what crime has been committed Let's go from there and start from there. And then, yes, you absolutely can judge and adjudicate where the culpability lies. But you got to start from a bit the true base premise, which is true in so much in this world. It's true about pretty much everything. So there you go. And I'm not going to argue that we should not pass laws outlawing abortion and uh, imposing censure and penalty on those who would provide or procure or assist others in getting it. But you know, my, my, my point, I guess, there is it's not unlike – it's not unlike drugs in a sense. I mean, heroin is not legal. Hopefully it never will be legal. But you can wage all the war on, on drugs you want until you stop the demand. You're never going to actually stop the, the problem. And until you can convince people that from the moment of conception, you have a life at stake. And that life needs to be protected. Yes, it will definitely help if the full force of the state is going to protect that life. Uh -huh. And, you know, the, the people who like to make fun of conservatives kind of have a point that when they say that, and, okay, don't flame me on this one because it's, it, it, it's, I'm not, I'm not 
agreeing with them. But they say, we, you know, up until the moment of birth, we got your back. But once you're born, you're on your own. No, I mean, there, there's, there's a, a lot more nuance to it than that. But life is precious. Life has meaning. And it's ultimately life is created by God so that we can be with him in heaven. Right. And when you abort a baby, you are precluding the chance of that baby ever being baptized. You're basically giving God the biggest middle finger you can possibly imagine. And if you think you can get away with that, you're going to find out otherwise. Yeah, that's that's the real malice. And again, that's what nobody wants to talk about. The most malicious thing about abortion is that is what Supernerd just said, is that you you are precluding the possibility that you're ending you're ending the person's life but precluding the possibility that they be baptized um and and that is actually germane to something that happened this week and I, you sent me a message did you tweet about this when um anti-pope bergoglio went on all souls day and did his uh, cemetery visit in Rome. No, it was it was October 31st and and the oh. whole point of my tweet was I was joking it must be the end of the month and somebody told Francis that he hadn't hit his quota of saying something uh, rational for the month and it it came across as something uh anti-abortion. He was visiting uh some part of a cemetery. What what I found out later in context is that he had visited a portion of a cemetery that was devoted to children who died without being baptized. So either miscarriages or died before being baptized. And he was praying for them. Excuse me. Praying for children in that condition is, that's blasphemous. You're denying original sin. Yep. Oh, you want to get, you want to make the Novus Ordo Cathy's, you want to make their head explode. This was, this is the entire reason that I got, I've told this story before, both in writing and on the podcast. This is why I got thrown out of that, um, that course I was taking, um, before I moved to the van down by the river, I was taking a course through the Archdiocese of Denver on Aristotelian ethics. And it was all a bunch of Novus Ordo Cathy's and me and one man who slept through every lesson. Um, and the teacher, the teacher was really good. He's a really nice guy, but this came up one day, this business of limbo and what happens to, you know, the aborted babies. And of course, all the Novus Ordo Cathy's who just are so uncatechized, contracatechized, you name it. You know, they start talking about how, oh, of course, all the all the little aborted babies are angels in heaven with wings. And I just say, ladies, stop, 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 stop. That is absolutely wrong. Think about what you're saying. If all aborted babies go straight to heaven and achieve the beatific vision, first of all, you're denying the need for baptism. You are denying the infallible dogma of the Immaculate Conception, that Our Lady and Our Lady alone was conceived uniquely without the stain of original sin. You're denying a Catholic dogma. Um. And furthermore, if you just stop and think about what you're saying, if what you're saying is true, if the end of man, and that's the one of the things that we had been talking about in the course is what is the end of man? What is the telos of man? And of course, it's the beatific vision. That's why God made us. That's why we exist. The end of man is the beatific vision. That is the highest and best. That's what everything's gunning towards. 
okay, we take that as our true base premise because it clearly is. All right. Going by what you have just said, room full of Novus Ordo Cathy's, if murdering a child in utero guarantees that the child achieves the beatific vision, then if you think in a logical progression, what that means is as soon as a woman finds out she's pregnant, the greatest act of mercy and kindness the woman could do is to instantly abort the child. Why? Because then it would achieve the beatific vision. No risk, no risk of being born, no risk of committing a sin. It would be the the perfect guarantee that this human being is going to reach their um, their ultimate perfected end as a human being, which is the beatific vision. And, you know, I just kept trying to explain this to them over and over again. And they just say, no, that's awful. Babies are cute and snuggly, and therefore they all go to heaven and they have angel wings. I mean, this is this is the intellectual level that you're dealing with a lot of the times. And that's why you can push all of this stuff through in the church, because it is this, you know, IQ in the upper 80s, wildly sentimental, wildly fem, uh, feminine, um, and also a feminine, but this feminine in in the pejorative sense, in the and you know, I I feel liberated to say that because I'm one of them and I can in with regards to females, I can call it as I see it. This wildly feminine, irrational, unthinking, sentimental uh, mindset, you can't even, you can't reason with them sometimes. Like, did you hear what I just said? What about the logical progression that I went through? Do you not understand? How do you not understand that if all aborted babies go to heaven, then the greatest mercy is to kill the child? And, you know, the answer is just is, is shut up, you know? I mean, that's that's the level of discourse with these people. And yes, you're exactly right. When Bergoglio does something and it, it looks like it might be halfway Catholic, look again, because even in that, that act of going to that cemetery and praying for dead, unbaptized, miscarried, aborted, stillborn babies, whatever it was, um, absolutely. This is, this is a direct attack on the absolute foundations, the absolute foundations of, of the Catholic faith. We're going to, we're going to the great commission. We're going to baptism. We're going to the immaculate conception. I mean, just tearing the whole thing to the ground in doing this thing that just sails over everyone's heads. Nobody, nobody picks up on this intense blasphemy, direct attack on Holy Mother Church, our Lord's death on the cross, the entire economy of grace and salvation, the sacraments, everything. And oh, isn't that nice? Oh, Francis went to the went to the cemetery and prayed for all the little angel dead babies. Even when he does something that superficially looks maybe kind of sort of almost if you squint Catholic, like I said, man, look again, look again, because everything is an attack. Yep. If you are not in the bark of Peter, you have no chance of getting to heaven. 
which is just, yep. you know, on the topic of Barca Peter and ships, uh, you just posted a blog post not that long ago uh, about uh, today's gospel, <laughs> the, yes. the which is it's very topical just to a lot of the things we've been talking about, although that's not really what we're going to talk about tonight. But just the the idea of of the the imagery of the of the church as a ship. Uh, we talk mm-hmm. about church militant a lot, and I've I've certainly used a lot of analogies about the military to to uh, talk about the church militant, but uh, it's also the church navy, I guess. I mean, the church navy, even in a church the the where the congregation sits is called the nave for that very reason. From the, from the yeah. Latin, it means a ship. I mean, we are in the bark of Peter at that point. And of course you're facing forward and who's the captain? Who's in front? Who's steering? It ain't us if it's done correctly. And if you've ever been on a ship where the captain's in the middle facing the wrong way, how does that end? Yep, exactly. Well, it's funny. Um, you know, I'll super nerd and I were always kind of throughout the week, just looking at the news and shooting some stories back and back and forward to one another. You know, do you think this might be a topic? Do you think that might be a topic? And not infrequently, and certainly whenever anything comes up in the news, it has anything to do with the Navy or navies or anything like that. Boy, super nerd can go off on some, on some pretty hardcore uh, rants. And I, I, that we had a story this past week, which we'll probably start with about the Chinese Navy. And, um, I, you know, I'm sending this to him and we're chatting back and forth. And I just, I said, man, we need, we need to do the super nerd Navy rant show. And I, I mean, because every time super nerd goes off on one of these naval rants, it's something, it's really interesting. It's interesting to me. Um, love hearing about it. And I know that we have a lot of, uh, a lot of the audience, a lot of the listenership is retired military. We always get lots of feedback whenever we talk about anything with regards to the military. So this is kind of the unofficial super nerd rants on the Navy. And there are so many of them. I think the F-35 rant, you said that could be like three completely different uh, topics in and of itself. Well, no, you um, you were talking about somebody had said that uh, we should do a a show or at least address the F-35. And I said, which one? There's three of them. But we'll we'll get to that one in a minute. This whole topic started, you sent me a a link to uh, a video about the Chinese military or Chinese naval parade. Mm-hmm. And you you made a comment about the uh, the Chinese um, the, the the naval aviation the 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 fighter jets the way they take off they have that flared takeoff because they do the the ski jump takeoff and it it looks kind of cool I say yeah it looks yeah kinda- their aircraft carrier it, it when the when the plane takes off it like goes off of the ski jump thing whereas ours are all just all of ours are flat right. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, so I sent Super Nerd a message and showed him, and we'll have this video in the show notes. Um, and tip to where I got the video, I think I got the video off of Vanderloon's website, um, AmericanDigest.org, is where I originally saw it. And um, I saw this, and I sent it to him. And I said, "Wow, that that ski jump thing is." is kind of cool uh, actually. And then super nerd comes back and says, Oh, let me explain to you why, while it looks cool, it's not so cool in, in real life. So 
Well, no, Explain it, that to us. It definitely looks cool. I mean, it, the, the there, there's a visual aspect of leaping into the sky because the the plane goes off of a of, off of a ski jump, and of course, with whether it's the Russian or the Chinese carrier, which the Chinese carrier was the second in the Admiral Kuznetsov uh, class of Russian carriers, and then Glasnost and Peace broke out, and the, they never finished the second one, and the Chinese said, "We'll take it," or maybe it went to the Ukraine, and then it went to the China. I forget how exactly, but it was the second one in the class of Russian carriers ended up in China and they did all knocked all the rust off and repainted it and got the whole thing going so it, in terms of spec- specifications and capabilities it's no more capable than the Russian one except that the Chinese might have learned a lesson or two from the Russians like if you can't land the, land the plane right away because uh, the, the arrestor cables are, are not working maybe tell the planes in the air to go land on shore if you can um, the, the Russians <laughs> yeah. well no seriously the Russians just lost two, two planes at sea was it last summer or the summer before they were doing uh, operations in, in the eastern Mediterranean off of Syria and they had something where they, they had two inbound planes ready to land but they had the, the flight deck was fouled they, they couldn't accept planes and one of the planes simply ran out of fuel and they had to ditch it at sea which you know that's you know, yeah. you could argue that's not that much of a loss because the MiG 29K is not nearly as, as, as capable as, as our planes uh, and I, I want to say they lost another one for similar reasons, but they, they lose planes because they don't know how to operate um, flight operations at sea. And uh, the, the Chinese wow. are still very new at this as well. Um, however, that being said, it's no small feat for any Navy to be able to launch a supersonic fighter at sea. Uh, to launch any plane that can go supersonic. And I'm, I'm not talking about like the old Yak-50s that uh, take off vertical like like uh, the Marine Harriers. And on a good day in a, in a nosedive with maximum throttle, they might be able to break the speed of sound. No, the, the MiG-29s are proper supersonic fighters. And so the fact that the, the, the capabilities of the Russian and Chinese planes aren't near what the French and American carriers can do... Um, and I explained this to Anne. She didn't quite get it. I said, yeah, these these planes look cool when they take off, but they have the choice of you can take off the fuel or you can take off the weapons. Because oh. no, and the, the reason why is is and the reason why they can take the the the, the angled flight deck to to leap into the sky is because they're not going very fast. They have the full afterburners going for one thing, because otherwise they will not get enough speed over deck uh, to or enough speed over in the air to be able to take flight. Uh, but once they do, it's pretty tenuous. If you see a, a video of these things taken from the from the bridge of the ship, the the plane leaps off the ski deck, ski jump, and then it pretty much stays at the same altitude. And you kind of wonder whether or not it's going to gain altitude any, at any point, except that it's on full afterburner, burning fuel as fast as it possibly can to give it as much thrust to try and get more speed through the air so it can take off. So in a so work- at, the, at this point, we should make. We should explain make, and make sure, you know, there are probably some people listening who, who don't know this, but explain what the mechanism is that we use on our carriers to launch. We use catapults. Um, all, all of the current ships, well, with exception of one, use a steam catapults. And what happens is over a period of or a distance of I think it's about 300 feet, there are a couple of naval aviators, at least two, maybe three who are listening. And I think even one of them flies the pointy or used to fly the pointy nose jets. So he can definitely correct me on this one. But in a period of about three to four hundred feet, you go from zero to 180 miles an hour just by virtue of the, of the power of the catapult. And that's mm-hmm. that's enough to that's enough for takeoff speed with with full ordnance and. 
it, you, you can load the plane full fuel, full ordnance, and even the newer planes like the uh, the F-18Es and the uh, when we still had them, the F-14D, you could take you could actually take off with with a good ordnance load and full fuel without afterburner. Uh, because the catapult would get you up to full flight speed before you leave the end of the deck, you didn't need to be thrown upward into the air. You had enough speed through the air to actually start climbing as soon as you left the end of the ship. And that's the big difference between uh, the U.S. and French carriers. The French have a similar concept. They they do steam catapults as well. Um, that's the big difference between the catapult uh, takeoffs and the, the Russian and Chinese aircraft where they've got to go full throttle to try to get as much speed through the air before they leave the deck, and they need that assist to be shot upward as well. They're not going very fast. They're not going anywhere near as fast when they leave the front of the ship as the U.S. planes are. And they, because of that, they've got to be a lot lighter. So in, in, the, in the event of, uh, let's say, a wartime situation with the Chinese or the Russians, uh, if they want to get a, a, a fighter jet into the air with a good ordnance load, First, they've got, to lo- they've got to launch a plane that's going to refuel that thing once it takes off. So first, they're going to launch the, the tanker aircraft. They get that one out and, and in position to uh, refuel the other one once it takes off. Then the one that's actually got ordnance and just enough fuel to get airborne takes off. And they've got to meet up and do a fuel transfer in time for the second plane <laughs> to be able to keep flying or else you're going to lose that two aircraft. That is so crazy. I get I'm. I, I am personally shocked that they that that even got off of paper, knowing that we have catapults, that they say, no, no, we're not going to do the catapult. We're going to do this incredibly risky, incredibly complex, time-consuming thing of having to do the mid-air re... Oh, that's that's absolutely insane. That blows my mind. Actually, it's a um, lot simpler because catapults are very complex. You've got to dial in the weight of the aircraft you're launching. And the mechanics have to be all correct. They've got to be constantly calibrated. In the case of the steam catapults on the Navy ships, the U.S. Navy ships, they have to be constantly maintained. They're constantly breaking. So you, you've got situations where, you, even in the movie Top Gun, there's mm-hmm. a situation which is true to life. Um, and again, correct me, naval aviators who operated off of flat tops, so this is wrong. It's not unusual for the steam catapults to go down on, on one of the launchers, which is one of the reasons they, on, on the supercarriers, they have four launchers or four catapults. If mm-hmm. one goes down, hey, we can still put, you know, three three more uh, launchers, but put planes in the air at fifteen second intervals at at wartime situations. But uh, it, it it's complex, but at least you can get a plane with a usable warload in the air quickly, as opposed to can the plane get fast enough over over the deck off a ski jump and get in the air? Yeah, fine. We, that's that's a lot easier to worry about. You don't have to worry about the mechanics of building up building up enough steam power. In, in the system to be able to, to launch the aircraft, that whole piston system. It's, it's not easy. I mean, we lost a lot of naval aviators uh, through the years learning all of this, learning how to do it. And even with the Russians and the Chinese being able to, to check out all of the National Geographic videos that have been done and all the other, you know, talking to people who built the systems and maintained it and the spies who learned the information, they still can't figure it out. So it, it, it unless you have active collaboration or you stole... You know, people and plans. Uh, the, the Chinese are working on on a catapult launch a carrier, but it's still probably ten, fifteen years away. But now, this um, this kind of leads to a tangent, but I think a really interesting tangent. It's something that we were talking about like last year. 
there is one carrier that they were trying to build a new carrier that had a non steam catapult system and it was a complete disaster. Is that, am I remembering this correctly? It's not a complete disaster. It's just a lot of things. There, there are a lot of things that can go wrong, but yeah, the, uh, the Ford class carriers, that's the Gerald R Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not using steam for their catapults. They're using electromagnetic, um, rail systems. So you're using electromagnet, electromagnetic, <laughs> electricity and magnetics. Yeah. So electric, driven ele- off of the nuclear reactor or I'll get to that. <laughs> okay. Okay. And it's, okay, it's okay. actually one of the reasons why once they get it correct, it's way more, um, it, it's, it's a lot more, uh, reliable than the steam catapults. So the idea is that, that, um, electric motors uh, you can go from zero to full torque immediately, so you can generate enough torque on on these uh, on these catapults to just rip the nose off of any aircraft you put on there, whether no matter how light or how heavy. However, once you tweak it just right, it also means you can launch uh, with catapult assist lighter or heavier aircraft because you can scale it exactly with the right amount of kilonewtons per second or whatever the 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 measure is exactly. You can get a more consistent launch. Uh, because you don't have to worry about, is the steam exactly 1,200 degrees centigrade right now? Do we have exactly the same pressure? We just launched 14 aircraft. Is it is it cycling fa- back fast enough? If the light turns green, you can launch the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And yes, all the all the carriers now are nuclear-powered. Uh, the Gerald, Gerald R4 class, the, the carrier, the, the the reactors on that one have the ability to generate three times the electricity of the, of the Nimitz class. Uh, that's more because they want to put um, energy weapons on there, like laser beam um, or phasers mm, or whatever they're, is yeah. they're working on that takes a, a rail guns, something that takes way more electricity than the uh, Nimitz class can take or can can generate. And the idea is they want to be able to be able to launch aircraft and operate these energy weapons at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, logical question. What if you're in the middle of launching a plane and the reactor, uh, the generator dumps load? Kind of a problem, right? Well, yeah. for the for the electromagnetic the electromagnetic launch system, what they've got is these gigantic. I don't know what I don't know if it's cement or something, but they actually spin these wheels up to the the proper RPM to sustain the launch, and these wheels are driving the alternators that deliver the electricity that drive the launch system. So, if you need to get these wheels up to eight thousand RPM to launch the aircraft. You don't launch until that thing's at that speed, which as long as the generators are all going, it's fine. You can do that. But what that guards against is you you say thumbs up and you launch the 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 F-18 or the F-35C that's on the on the catapult and suddenly the ship drops load. Well, the the uh, the launcher system is not powered by the main ship load there. It's based on these little um, gerbil wheels that are, well, huge wheels with yeah, fly, it's huge flywheels. Yeah, exactly. Fly wheel, yeah. And, and that is d- delivering the electricity that, that launches the plane. So the ship can drop load and you can still launch the plane within a few seconds. Right. So the, it, it's a more consistent uh, powering system. Okay. Um, and there's there's also a lot lot fewer things to break in that sense. Electrical electrical systems tend to be more reliable uh, to the extent that um, electric cars are are used. And I'm not talking about Priuses. I'm talking about all electric cars. An electric motor has I don't know 19 parts to it. How many parts are in an internal combustion engine? Mm-hmm. More than 19. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And and, and um, an electric car with with enough torque can can blast any it, it can out outrun anything uh mm-hmm. with, with a comparably sized 
uh, internal combustion engine. I'm not talking about a V16 um, Bugatti Veyron or something like that, which has just you know insane amounts of, of engine power. But you know, a, a Ford Taurus V6 or V8 versus a, a Tesla Model 3. That Tesla 3 can go from zero to full torque as fast as you can put your foot down. Mm-hmm. Your Ford's not going to do that. So the same yeah. same principle with these, and, and plus the, there are so many fewer parts. You know, pretty much every once in a while you need to go clean the dust and dirt out of the electric motor. That's what makes the thing stop working, unless you run too much current through it, which I don't think that's going to be a problem with these carriers per se. But the the idea is that you have so many fewer parts, it's not going to break down in the same sense that a steam catapult. You have steam connections for four hundred feet. You've got a trolley system to take to get the the, the catapult trolley down and back. Uh, the electromagnetic systems are just a lot simpler. You just have to apply a lot of electricity. And in the past, that was a problem. Not so much anymore. Where the Ford class carrier has a lot of problems is they're doing with that ca- class of carriers kind of what they're doing at the F-35. They're not changing just one little thing. They're changing a brand new uh, – they're, they're putting a brand new um, reactor system in, which I'm confident they can do that well. They're putting brand new launch systems in, brand new arrestor cable systems. So on, on the, the Nimitz class carriers, when the planes land, they, they have a hook off the back, the tail hook, that catches one of four wires on the back of the ship, and that's what drags the plane to a stop. Uh-huh. And underneath the decks, there are some, um, hydraulic, uh, some hydraulic systems that are engaged when, that, when the plane catches the, the cable, and that's going to be changed apparently to an electromagnetic system as well. And I, I guess yeah. there are flywheels involved with that as well. I, I don't know all all the details, but they've they've changed the arrestor gear system, they've changed the launch system, they've changed the, uh, the the electrical generation system. There was talk of whether or not they were going to put the whether or not the drive for the ship itself was going to become electric motors as opposed to steam turbines. There's no reason why that wouldn't work. It's just not terribly efficient. But they're changing a whole bunch of stuff all at once. Well. That means there are <laughs> however many different systems you're changing completely at once, you have that many times more opportunity for things to go wrong. So mm-hmm. the ship was supposed to be online 2020. It might be online 2024. But when it is online and everything is finally worked out, it's going to be a leap so far forward that if the Russians catch up to where the Nimitz was, we're 40 years ahead of them. Wow. But what was when we were talking about it last year, um, hadn't they decided they were like halfway through building one of them? And what was it? There was like an executive order signed or something saying oh, Trump, when he came in, said something about I don't want these damn digital catapults to bring, bring back steam. Which no, is, it's too too late at that point for, yeah, the, it's for like, the one that was under construction. Yeah, right? it's, it's like Elon Musk or somebody else smoking a joint and saying, "Hey, these uh, Tesla threes coming off the lines. Let's put let's put um, four cylinder engines in them and just ch- and change out the motor." There's a yeah. lot more that needs to be changed than just the motor, the the the, the mechanical drive system, um, or, the, or the the input that makes makes the roundy roundy. There's a lot of other systems that need to change if you're going to go from electric to something non electric. So it was. It was an example. I think that might have been the first time I used the term gross conceptual error on the podcast. Yes, yes. Because that, that's such a low level. You clearly don't know what you're talking about. You're an ignoramus to say it. And it's just Trump pandering to his base. I mean, the, the industrial blue collar people like to hear that. They work with steam and they understand steam power and things like that. And, you know, God bless those folks. We need them. But 
that's not what this ship is all about. It, it's it's um, the whole point, like the Navy in general, is supposed to be about projecting power from the sea. And if and when they get all of these systems working correctly, <laughs> it might even happen in my lifetime. When it happens, it's going to be a monumental feat. And it kind of gets into the what I was mentioning about the the four class carriers. It's a whole bunch of systems they're they're revving all at once. You know, it's not just minor upgrades; it's massive changes of systems. They did the same thing with the F thirty five. So this is a mm-hmm. it's a plane. It's supposed to be stealth, which we we've had stealth planes before. Um, we even had stealth fighters before. But the idea that we're going to make one plane that all of the services use. Um, We've never intentionally done that before. There was a plane. Uh, let's see. When, when was this come come out? Is it the fifties or sixties? The F four Phantom. It was originally designed. I don't even know if, now if it was designed for the Marine Corps or the Navy. But the point is, it was designed to be launched off a of carrier to begin with, and it very quickly became adopted by both the, the Navy and Marine Corps. Just for grins, McDonnell Douglas gave gave a few copies to the Air Force and said, "Hey, would you be interested in this?" It broke the. Um, timed altitude record uh, that was previously set by one of the Russian planes. And the Air Force said, yeah, we want some of these. And they played with them in Vietnam and said, okay, um, this Navy version is nice, but we don't need the double front wheel. We don't need these super heavy-duty suspension on these things that are designed to be crash-landed every time you land. We don't need the um, the tail hook. We don't (laughs) – just the whole list of all the things that they don't need on the plane because it's not – the Air Force doesn't need a Navy plane. They've got – 10,000 foot runways everywhere, everywhere they operate. It's right next to the mm-hmm. golf course. And so they, they don't need a lot of the stuff. And of course they would rather have guns on there, additional avionics and all the rest. So within one generation of the air force, having the F four, the next version of the F four for the air force was the air force version. It didn't have a tail hook. It didn't have uh, naval support. It didn't have the saltwater resistance systems uh, or build to it. It was a lot lighter as well. So it, it could, it could be more nimble. So even though initially somebody accidentally came up with a plane that all the services liked, the bad thing there was that procurement people in the Pentagon thought, hey, wouldn't it save us a lot of money if we could design one plane that all three services could use? (laughs) That would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, in the real world, that's not how it works. The the Uh Marines need a plane that takes off vertically because they don't operate normal carriers. Uh, the, the Navy has steam catapults and uh, arrested landing, which they just the force of an arrested landing would just tear apart an F-15 if they ever tried to land on a carrier. Um, same thing with launching it. The the the, the heavy duty system. If, if you ever look on, online at videos on YouTube of Navy planes versus Air Force planes, Navy planes always have two wheels in the front. It's because they straddle the, the little trolley system there for the for the catapult launch. Air Force oh, planes. Yeah, sure. Air Force planes tend to have one wheel in the front. That's all they need. Okay, that makes sense. And in the same sense, if you're going to be, let's say, a, a, you know, your base model F four Ford F one fifty, you're not going to be running the Baja five hundred with one of those. Uh-huh. You're going to need to get a super heavy duty, heavy suspension, heavy shocks, all the rest. Same idea between the Air Force planes. It tend to they t- they tend to value landing kind of softly, as opposed mm-hmm, to Navy mm-hmm. planes. They are intentionally hitting the deck very hard, and when they hit, they're going full throttle right away. Because mm-hmm. if they don't hit that cable, they got to be back up to airspeed very fast. Mm-hmm. So Navy planes at sea, they it's not an exaggeration to say they crash land. Uh, the, mm-hmm. hy- the hydraulics on the landing gear are specifically designed to take that kind of abuse. So. 
they're they're just very different planes. Okay, so the F-35, it's meant to be an Air Force plane. It's meant to be a, a Marine Corps plane that can take off vertically. It's meant to be a Navy plane. And I made the comment that it's not one plane, it's three. And they even give this away in the designation. The Air Force flies the F-35A. The uh-huh. Marine Corps flies F-35B, which can take off vertically. And the Navy flies the F-35C. It's got the dual front wheels. It's got a different wing geometry so that it can take off and land much slower, like at the speeds that naval aircraft land and take off. Uh, It's got the much heavier duty uh, landing gear. As a result, it's a lot heavier. It can't accelerate the same way the Marine Corps and and especially the Air Force F-35s do. That said, um, there are a lot of things about the F-35 civilians will never know. Because it's so highly classified, and there's there's the old saying that people who are in the know don't say, and people who don't know what they're talking about tend to talk. And uh-huh. I'll admit that I thought the F thirty five was a turkey for a long time, and it still may end up being. But some of the some of the feedback coming back now about the capabilities of this airplane, it may be all we need it to be. I don't know. Or it could be a long con so that all of our allies have sunk trillions of dollars into it while we develop the F-22's follow-on version and, and uh, we have planes that fly and they don't. I don't know. Huh, huh. But I, I would, at this point, I wouldn't write the whole thing off as a complete failure. And this may sound strange to some people who because there are a fair number of people who don't like Jews who listen. But when, 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 <laughs> the, when the Israelis bought the F-35... And and we yes. give them enough money, they could buy anything from anyone or develop their own. They bought the F-35, and at that point I'm thinking, wait a minute. These people have a very high opinion of, of their ability to defend themselves from the air. They, they've won mm-hmm. a couple of wars just on their air power alone. If they bought the F-35, there's something they understand that we don't. Now, granted, they did get... Um, the ability to do something that no other F-35 partner did, that they got the right to buy a stripped-down version and put all their own avionics in it. Now hmm. they, they get to do that. Uh, the rest of the countries who who buy the F-35, that would be voiding the warranty, and we won't service it at that point. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. You know, the Israelis get to do what they want in that regard. They, they, they make half of the avionics we use anyway. So, Right, right. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, that is a good point. It's not like you know, us doing these horrible, horrible maneuvers. What did Obama do? Sold an entire turnkey air force to the Saudis for 65 billion or something like that. You know, the the Saudis are all a bunch of imbeciles. They don't know what they're doing. A bunch of inbred hillbillies who declared themselves royalty and, you know, were sitting on a bunch of oil. Um, And that's it. That's it. They didn't so much Um, declare themselves as the British co-opted that. There's some, uh, inter- there's some interesting history there at the end of World War One, where the House of Saud was not supposed to be the ones who took over Saudi Arabia, but it was the machinations of, oh, I forget who was in charge then. Uh, in, I, I don't remember. I, I should know this one off the top of my head. I, it's not Trudeau, but that's the name coming to mind. I, I know that's wrong. Uh, it's not Chamberlain either, but whoever was in charge, they, there were some string pulling and, and they had the House of Saud put in charge. And I guess it was the idea that these were the thugs we could trust. how's that working out for you yeah great thanks so much for that so uh, yeah i mean if the if the if the israelis have have bought the f-35 it must not be it must not be a complete turkey i'll i'll concede that yeah and you know it it does have the ability to super cruise so you don't you you can go supersonic without 
putting on the afterburner so you, you can get further faster without burning all your fuel. Uh, it is relatively stealthy. I don't know all the details on that one, and nobody who knows is going to be able to say. Uh, it, you know, and even though it doesn't carry a massive weapon load compared to older, older airplanes, with the precision of weapons these days, you don't need to carry 16 missiles when one will do the job. And yeah. that, that's something, too, that you know I've seen very compelling arguments for why are we even building supercarriers anymore? Why aren't we building um, smaller, uh, lighter carriers that only carry, say, 40 planes? Which, by the way, is about what the Chinese and Russians carry, but that's for a different reason. That's about all they can handle at the moment. We can build Nimitz carriers that can carry 90 planes. But when the Nimitz was built, the relative precision of weapons meant that if you needed to if there was a target you had to eliminate no questions asked you would launch what's called an alpha strike which is every single plane that can fly and carry ordnance you're launching them all and you're going to hit this target and hopefully somebody dropped one or two bombs that actually hit and blew up the target well now you fly one f-18 with the jdam joint direct attack munition and it's going to it's going to land no more than five meters from the target Mm-hmm. And that's if somebody's doing uh, GPS jamming and optical guidance isn't working, in which case if optical guidance is working, you can pretty much guarantee it's going to land within about five centimeters of the target. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you need 40 planes dropping ordnance, full load ordnance, if you, to blow up a bridge when one 1,000-pound bomb with uh, precision guidance will do the trick? Right. It's kind of a World War II mindset with you know 21st century GPS technology and all that. Yeah. Well, and, and there's there's also the the thought that you know, in, in terms of forward air control, uh, the F-35s are going to be able to do things that no other plane's been able to do. Even the 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 AWACS planes haven't been able to really pull off simply because they can be on scene without being seen and be able to fire back if necessary. I mean, the, there are so many potential capabilities that we don't know about on these planes. Um, it's also I've seen it written that this is the last. Uh, series of, of u.s fighters where pilots are actually necessary yeah meaning that these actually might be able to fly without pilots and not that we necessarily are going to launch f-35s but the the idea that one pilot in an f-35 might be on a he might be the only human on a 12 ship sortie so there might be 11 drones that he's coordinating with he's going to sit back and uh, the, the pilot on this one saying this is our target uh, you know, you two drones take out this bridge. You other two drones go take out this fuel dump. You two drones go do this. And you other three drones fly high and, and come after the MiGs that, that we're picking up on sensors that are, you know, information. We, we know there are MiGs out there uh, from other sensor platforms that uh, we can't identify because of security concern or because it's all classified. Mm-hmm. This whole science fiction story about what it might be able to do might be true. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the... The good news, the, the best case scenario is we never find out because if we find out for sure, it means we've, we're going to war with China or Russia or Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, any, any of the above is a possibility, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, the, there, there are a lot of reasons to say that the, the F-35 is, no, at least in the Navy, it's nowhere near as capable as the F-18. Uh, it's nowhere near as capable as a lot of planes. The, the, on the Air Force side, I've wondered why they didn't take a lot of these uh, avionics upgrades are working on for the 35. Why didn't they put these in the F-16, a, a known proven platform that's worked well for 40 years? Why not put it on the F-15? We're talking about the Israelis and their love of planes that actually work. They love the F-15. It's The F-15 has never lost a, a dogfight, period. It's like 190 or 220 to zero 
every time an F-15 wow. has gone up against some somebody else, the F-15 wins. That's the the F-15 is what we would all know as the as the top gun airplane, right? No, that was the F-14. Nope, sorry. Okay. Yeah, one was made by McDonnell Douglas, and um, the other one was made by... Lockmark, yeah? No, no, no. It, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name. It, it's it's the one that did all the, avi- the naval stuff out of um, Bethpage, New York. Grumman. Grumman. Also Grumman. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it was just Grumman then, but... Oh. At the F-14, there were a lot of people who thought that's the plane that should have stayed in the Navy instead of the F-18. But the the whole swing wing concepts, you know, the more moving parts you have, the more opportunity for breakage. And yes, it was cool. It definitely had the appeal of the the Top Gun movie. But uh, the, the maintainers didn't like the fact that for every four hours that plane flew, you had to spend 25 or 50 hours of maintenance on the things. Whereas the F-18s were no just way. way more reliable. No oh, way. Yeah, easily. <gasps> Good grief. Makes my 78 Chrysler look look awesome by comparison, dude. Well, Man. it's a 1960s design. And talking about selling air forces to Islamic countries, we sold a bunch of F-14As to the, to the Shah of Iran. So the only country currently flying the F-14 is Iran. But they can't fly most of theirs because they don't work <laughs> anymore. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Well, do you want to uh, <laughs> do you want to make some people's heads explode and give your why the Air Force should be rolled into the Navy rant? Yeah, I found a blog post about that somewhere. If I can find it, I'll link it. But it goes back more to the point of what's the point of having a separate force or a separate branch of the military for the Air Force? It's either doing close air support for the Army, which in that case, why not just give close air support to the army just like the marines have their own close air support support let them mm-hmm. do that and everything strategic isn't that more of a navy role even though even though naval ships and aircraft are very tactical in the way they're employed it's a very strategic capability that if um i don't know if india starts saber rattling maybe india is a bad example if uh, north korea starts saber rattling and all of a sudden two nimitz class carriers with you know a combined 140 what did I say it was 90 aircraft? Let's just say 80. Let's say 150 aircraft are parked offshore. Mm-hmm. That's kind of strategic. That that's, <laughs> that seems to be in, in the ballpark of what the Navy can do. And, and if it's if it's two carriers and, oh, by the way, we, we're orbiting a, a B-2 and a couple of B-52s every once in a while, these these are strategic assets. You're kind of letting you know we, we, could, we could return you to the Stone Age anytime we feel like it. But, of course, once you go hot, you know, it's tactically employed or strategically employed, but it's it's more in the role of what the Navy does, long-range patrol, project power from the sea. And as a country that's bordering oceans, I mean, unless we go to war with Canada or Mexico, we don't, you know, immediate ground is not really our, our biggest concern in terms of projecting military force. Mm-hmm. If we can reach out and touch you anywhere in the world, put, a, put numerous battalions of Marines or, or Rangers on your doorstep anytime we feel like it, that seems more of a strategic asset kind of thing uh, that belongs in the, in the Department of the Navy, not so much the Air Force. Well, and just on a on a different on a different note, um, politically, socially, culturally, the Air Force um, is is just the worst. It is leading the way in everything bad in all of these social cultural experiments, all of the the sodomy and the transvestitism, just everything bad that, you know, the government is trying to force through culturally um, 
it seems to me that the Air Force is the the tip of the spear there, that they're just saying, okay, go to Colorado Springs, do it in Colorado Springs, and then let it metastasize throughout throughout everything else. Um, so I, I've been saying for years, and there's a video of me somewhere giving a talk in Colorado Springs saying, all all of the service academies need to be, it's almost exactly like the church, the analog between, you know, government, military, church, it's all the same. All these service academies, starting with Colorado Springs, just needs to be completely, you know, liquidated, everything stopped, everybody fired, re- restart from scratch. But I kind of like your point of just, you know, do do away with the Air Force altogether and roll it into Annapolis or, or whatever, or build something new from scratch somewhere. Um, because it's that culture, that Air Force culture is just absolutely awful. And I don't know, it seems like the same thing with the church. The only way that you, that you, we're going to reset this is if there's just a massive wholesale everybody gets fired and we we rebuild from scratch sort of a dynamic. Mom, if you're looking for people who are pious and virtuous, I don't think the military is the first place you want to look anyway. I mean, these are people Amen. who yep. these these are people who, you know, when the nation calls on them need to go kill enemies. Seriously. That that's not something that should come easy to any human being and if we can if we can repurpose the um social maladjustment of some people who don't really fit in anywhere else and they could do that really well. Let's just keep them in that, that cage and, you know, break glass in case of emergency and let them go go have fun there. You know, I read a really interesting piece not too terribly long ago, and I will find this and we'll put it in the show notes. And it was a piece that was about, um, what was it? These, these guys that go and do this absolutely insane motorcycle racing the kind of motorcycle racing where where guys are you know on the circuit in in total one or two guys per year are killed doing this and the point of this piece was is that you know there are these men in all, in all cultures and all societies who are basically born to be what you just said supernerd they're born to be the guys who go and fight the wars and here we are in this this Pax Americana, put it in in scare quotes. Um, as, as long as you're not in the Middle East, as yeah, as long as you're not in the Middle East, you're you're in this Pax Americana where there's no land war, you know, on on the American continent. You know, we can all agree we can all agree to that. Um, and so there's no outlet for this uh, this percentage of the male populace that is wired, that God made this way to be the guys that, you know, go march off to war, which was just, you know, it was just a a common thing um, all throughout history up until basically, you know, the last, the last hundred years in, you know, in the North American, uh, uh, in North America. So, you know, we, you, people like me who have never, ever seen war, in their in their ancestral homeland, whereas before it was just people were constantly. I mean, you look at Europe, and all every little teeny tiny town, teeny tiny town has huge walls built around it, and you know those those weren't there for you know to make the town look like a quaint tourist attraction. 
Those were functional walls because those people were just constantly fighting wars with each other. So there was this outlet for all of these men whose that that was kind of their vocation in life was to go off and fight these wars. And it was brutal. Since we don't have that, even though, you know, the the male population has been feminized and, you know, we could have a whole nother episode and we probably will have a whole nother episode about how. It's it's looking more and more like what people have been warning about the um, the the hormones that are contained in the birth control pill getting into the water supply and just somehow messing with um, specifically the male population. I, I can testify to this. I walk the streets every day and you can see you can see there is a physiognomic difference between young guys today and young guys when i was a kid the shape of their bodies the wideness of their hips the fact that and it isn't just a function of the clothing and, and the fashions and the haircuts and all that it is getting more and more difficult and it's getting more and more common to see a couple walking down the street and you cannot tell by looking immediately who the man is, who the girl is, et cetera, et cetera. You have to like stand and stare and study because there's more and more men who have wide hips, who have man boobs, you know, and not, not terribly hairy, um, still tall, still big, but not just not manifesting masculinity. But there still are the plenty of men in, in the culture, you know, where we aren't completely gone yet. We're, we're still able to reproduce. We just choose not to. Um, but the point is of this piece was, is the reason there are these paradigms like this motorcycle racing and this, these kind of extreme sports and all of this is because that is the outlet for, for these men since going off and, and basically fighting wars isn't isn't available to a lot of them or they've done their stint in the military and then they want to get the hell out because it's it's so dysfunctional and it's so you know communist and you end up with some drag queen in, in the bed in the bunk next to you or whatever insanity or you know like we were talking about in a previous issue in a previous episode that you know, you've got some, you know, two crazy lesbian officers having a fight with each other and they crash the boat or something. You know, any any sane man is if they're if they're eyewitness to that, they're going to say, get me the hell out of here. They don't want to stick around. So they come out of the military and they get into these extreme sports and this this stuff that's risking their life and so on and so forth, because that is the outlet for them. And, you know, there's the point of the secondary point of this piece is that there's two kinds of women. There's women who understand this and women who don't understand this. And the women who don't understand this are, you know, berating these guys for why are you doing this? It's a waste of money. You know, you're risking your life, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the women who do understand say, look, this, this is this person's constitution. This is my husband's constitution. He has to have an outlet for this. And this, this is what is available. So this is what he does. Um, so it, it was a really interesting commentary and point on how the male culture shifted and how you have to find non non war outlets for these guys. Um, and in a certain sense, if you think about it, you know, I've always 
been frankly terrified what's going to happen when order fully collapses, the rule of law fully collapses, some sort of civil war breaks out. Well, who in the hell is going to be fighting this? I mean, it's, are there any, you know, I'll go ahead and say it. Are there any white men left who are capable of standing, defending, fighting a war? Or is it just going to be a bunch of the gangbangers just absolutely rolling over and a largely effeminized um, culture? And I guess I guess there's a there's a bit of, um, of of comfort in seeing that yeah those guys still are out there you just have to know where to look for them they're not fighting wars they're doing these other things and when when you when you see that and realize okay these guys who are racing motorcycles all right that's those are the kind of guys who will stand and fight and these guys that are doing this and these guys that are doing that. All right, these are the guys that'll stand and fight when the time comes. They're still out there. You, they're just kind of hiding in plain sight. So, a uh, little bit of a little bit of a solace there. Well, and there's also the, as any programmer would know, when there's a deadline right in front of you, that's when you're most productive. And when there's right. an immediate <laughs> yeah. deadline of you need to get off your butt right now and do something, or else the whole civilization is going to be overrun. Well, or your whole city is going to be overrun, or your state. Some people who otherwise wouldn't seek it out would probably stand up and, and um, come to the defense. Heck, the gangbangers might even do that, too, that, as interesting as that sounds. But um, I, I don't think it's as, as lost. It may be chaotic. We, we don't have an organized militia. That I think the police could probably get overrun pretty quickly, even yeah. with their military gear that they're sporting these days. Um, I, I don't think it's – I don't know. It, it, it's hard to tell. Maybe in some areas – uh, on the extreme coasts, that'd be more of a problem. Uh, I think in in the middle of the country, it's not going to be not so much of a problem. But who knows? Yeah, I, I hope who I don't knows? ever have to find out. Oh, I'm afraid that given how old we are, and you know, if we live natural lives at the rate things are going, I'm afraid that we are going to see it in our lifetime. So, might as well start talking about it, figuring it out. Yeah, start uh, acclimating yourself to doing the arduous good. And that gets into another topic I wanted to get to real quick. We are in the octave of All Souls Day. And it is always good to think about the souls in purgatory. Um, I just heard, actually now I'm trying to remember, did I hear it in a sermon a couple days ago or did I read it? I'm going to share a link in the show notes on St. Padre Pio's visions of the souls in purgatory. Oh, yeah. And the, the idea of... Um, that there is the souls in purgatory know exactly who prays for them. And so few people do pray for them. And there, there are people um, who make it to purgatory. And again, this is based on the revelations, private revelations. So if you don't want to believe in private revelations, you know, Go ahead, go do something else. See how that works out for you. Uh, but there are people who say that there are souls in the lowest level of purgatory, which is essentially like a, um, a happy version of hell. These are souls who would have been lost, except that somebody was interceding for them. Somebody uh, with with powerful prayers, uh, whether it was family members or somebody, some somehow a, a a convent of Carmelite nuns prayed for this person who had his wayward and full of vice, and they they found the grace of salvation. But they have a lot to expiate, mm-hmm. and so there are some people there. They even those people, when you pray for them, they will not forget who prayed for them and when they are released. Do you think they're going to forget at that point who got them out of purgatory? 
make all the friends you want in, in, in prayer circles here on earth, but f- even even better, perhaps more wise, is pray for the souls in purgatory because when they do get out, they are going to they're in a great position. They will be in a much better position to help you than people on earth for the most part. Well, obviously, if we're with it, they'll have the beatific vision. So, yeah. Um, yes. Another interesting point to always keep in mind is that the vast, 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 vast majority of human beings who have ever lived are completely and totally forgotten. Um, most people are, are there's there's no record that they ever existed. Certainly they're out of living memory. Um, and it, it, you'd be surprised how many people there are that are completely, totally forgotten and of whom there is no living memory and not even any record of, of their existence who have who have lived and died within the last century. Even there's still a lot of people. I mean, we're you know, we all exist now in this digital this digital ether. And you, you say, well, that's impossible. You know, there's a record of 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 somebody. Some oh, no, no, no. The vast majority of people are completely forgotten, which means that the vast majority of the people in purgatory are completely consciously forgotten by people here on earth. So there's a lot of people who are in purgatory who just, you know, there's nobody, there's nobody praying for them in the way that, you know, you're praying for grandma or great grandma or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of people who need prayers and then for people who are converts, you know, people like me, and there's a lot of other converts out there listening saying, and you know, all, all of my family members, all of my family members, everyone that I am related to, you know, lived and died very much outside of the church. What, what do I do? Well, there's a couple of things to remember. Um, you pray for, you pray for your deceased family members, and Our Lady is the mediatrix of all graces. And if, sadly, our family members did not make it through their particular judgment, the prayers that we offer for them will then be taken by Our Lady and redirected and reallocated to those forgotten people. Um, the other thing to remember is everyone, basically, everyone in in, in Europe, so all of our, almost all of our ancestors, um, before the 1500s, everyone pretty much was Catholic. So you do have family members who lived and died inside the church. Even if you are a total wasp convert, it's just a matter of how far back do you have to go? How many generations back is it before you hit whoever it was in England or Germany or wherever it was who fell into, you know, the Anglican, the Anglican schism or the Lutheran heresy and schism or whatever. So you do have, if you're, if you are of European heritage, you almost certainly do have relatives who lived and died in the church and some of them are probably still in purgatory because, you know, it, it, one, one should not expect that one's purgation will happen in a matter of, of days or weeks. One should be expecting that one's purgation will probably be measured in, in decades or centuries. So there's a lot of people who you are related to, even if you're a convert, who are, who are probably in, in purgation still. So, yeah, pray for them, too. Well, and something else to keep in mind there with regard to how long it takes in purgatory, 
God is the master of time and space. And we've mentioned the phrase before that every mass is a warping of space and time. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether you're in you know, Poughkeepsie, New York or Wahoo, Nebraska. At the consecration, you were at Calvary. Yes. At the time that Jesus was, was executed for yes. your sins. Mm-hmm. Space and time it is, it, is, it is not a hard thing. It is once for all sacrifice, yes. Space and time manipulation is not exactly difficult for, for an omnipotent being. And something that was in the sermon yesterday uh, that the priest mentioned, he was talking, it was one of the stories about um, uh, the souls in purgatory. And it was, um, I forget what order of monks it was, but it was a monk who I think was on his deathbed and... Uh, the other monks thought he was sleeping uh, for three, four hours, something like that. He woke up and explained that he had just been in purgatory. He'd already been judged. He'd been in purgatory for 150 years. Or no, it, it was one one phase of purgatory. It was 150 years. He'd, he had just completed his 750 years in purgatory and gave a complete account of every stage and talking about how the the souls, you know, who, who at, the, at the lowest edge, they are, they have to go through the most extreme purgation. They were the ones who should have been damned, except somebody was praying for them and won won, a mer- won some some mercy and got the the grace of repentance at the last moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had gone through seven hundred fifty years of purgatory, and the last thing for him to do before being released and going to heaven was to give an account of this to the to the monks. And as soon as he finished. He laid down, he, he fell asleep peacefully and went straight to heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay, three hours, 750 years. Is it science fiction? <laughs> Are you going to argue with the power of God? Seriously? That That is totally reminiscent of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where some probe comes and takes over Captain Picard's mind and he lives an entire life on some planet somewhere. And the whole point of the thing was that the people on the planet, the planet was dying, the sun was going to explode or something. And so they built this probe to go out and somehow do this so that there would be a record of, um, of this civilization, even though they, they were all completely destroyed, that there would be a record of this civilization. And that was the big thing. So he lived, he lived an entire life. He had a wife, he had a bunch of kids. And this, the thing that they did on Star Trek is they kept referencing back to this in future episodes. So he, one of the things that he had done is he had learned to play a flute. And so it kept, this flute kept cropping up in future episodes of Star Trek, the next generation, you know, always kind of this little reminder that, the captain, Captain Picard, had also lived this entire other adult lifetime. And, you know, it, all of those memories were in his head and so forth. Um, so, yeah, that's probably I wonder I wonder if whoever wrote that that screenplay um, hadn't come across that story of of that purgation of that that monk experiencing 750 years in three or four hours. Yeah. And it is it is a reminder that time Oh, time is, we experience time here on earth with such rigidity that we can't even conceive. You really can't get your head around what it is to exist outside of time, as God obviously does, and as the beatific vision is. Um, What is it like to exist, but there not be the passage of time for everything to be one big now? I mean, we can't even conceive of these things. We can't conceive of of any sort of existence um, without a before, without an after, without a beginning, without an end, you know. Um, But and and even then to, to talk about things like 
the intense speeding up of time, of time being bent and warped. We can kind of sort of, if we squint, you know, we can kind of sort of get our heads around it, but there's certainly no way that we can, we can process, process experientially what that is like until it happens, but it's going to happen <laughs> and plan on, you know, the thing about purgatory and the poor souls is almost everybody is going to end up who ends up, you know, making it through their particular judgment. Almost everybody is going to have to go to purgatory. The, the number of people who die um, in such a state of sanctity that they just go straight to heaven and straight to the beatific vision um, without obviously being martyred. Martyrs go straight to the beatific vision. But the thought is, is that, you know, that they are purged. It, the, their death, like if they're tortured and executed or something like that, that that is the purgation. And that God in his mercy then, you know, like Super Nerd was just talking about, he exercises his option to just, you know, instantaneously um, purge that soul. And you might be listening to that saying, well, that's not fair. Well, you know, <laughs> we can't make any comments on what's fair and what's not fair. A- anybody, anybody getting the beatific vision at all is, in a sense, unfair because it required Christ's death on the cross. And that's the most unfair thing that's ever happened and ever could possibly happen. Um, so the whole thing is built. Go, Go back and read the stories of the Roman martyrs and see that some of them were on the point of giving their life and then checking out at the last minute. Do you think they made it to heaven? Mm-hmm. The whole point is you can't just say, I want to be a martyr. Yeah, that, that's a grace that requires massive virtue before that opportunity is ever given to you. Yeah, and it's it's a tricky thing because if you go if you go hunting for it, it can, you can cross the line and it can it can turn into suicide. And so you know it's it's a it, it's a not something to be to be messed with and, and played with. And it's a term that's that's wildly overused, you know. Any anyone who dies um, tragically early, you know, people who die for who died for example in nine eleven. Oh, they're all martyrs. Well, no, no, no. Really throwing that word around. Heroes and martyrs. Those two words are really thrown around a lot, and you got to be careful with it. But um, yeah, you, we're all gonna almost certainly the like the best we can hope for is ending up in purgatory and uh, being there and getting, getting all of this, this filth and attachment to sin that we, that we have just burned out of us because you cannot, you cannot stand before God. You cannot stand before God if you are attached to sin in any way. And this is the great, this is the great Lutheran heresy. The great Lutheran heresy is, is that what Luther said, and, and in these terms, he said, we are all piles of shit. We are just piles of shit, completely depraved. And Christ's death on the cross is just like taking a blanket of snow and putting this blanket of snow over the top of each one of us, which we still remain. We still remain existentially piles of shit 
but we have this this uh, blanket of snow put over the top of us. And that's exactly how he phrased it. And this is just so, so completely, totally wrong. Um, nothing, nothing and no one can be in the beatific vision if if you are, you know, attached to sin and so on and so forth. So we all beg God, we want to die in friendship, you know, confessed of our mortal sins, die well, which is the fruit of the fourth glorious mystery, um, Our Lady's Assumption into Heaven, the grace of a happy, holy, provided death. Um, but almost all of us, it must be understood, even if we if we die in a state of friendship with Christ, just because we're fallen human beings, um, there's probably still going to be, almost certainly will be, lingering vestigial attachments to sin. We're not going to be completely, uh, complete, completely sanctified, perfected people, even even at the moment of our death. So there's going to have to be this this cleansing, as it keeps talking about, as as um, you know, precious metals, as gold is purified with fire. Um, that's exactly what happens. You've got to burn all of that last vestigial attachment to sin off. And the way that that happens in that burning is the fact that you, you've you gotten through your particular judgment. You know that you're going to achieve the beatific vision at some point. You know you're in. So you've, you've got hope and you have that joy, but you're still outside of the beatific vision. And so you have that, that burning, burning agony of loving God so much and wanting so much to be with him and so much to see him, but you can't, you're, you still have to, you know, have all the, all the vestigial attachment to sin burned out of you. This is actually the same species of the primary agony of hell. The difference is, is the people in hell have no hope. They know that they are damned and they will never, ever, 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 ever see God. There is no hope, but they still, but the, the primary agony of hell is the, is that longing for God and knowing that you'll never see him. And that's why God in his mercy permits the damned to be tormented by demons, by each other. It's a merciful distraction. It is a mercy. The torments of hell are a mercy. They are a merciful distraction from the primary agony, which is the absence of God and knowing that you're in, that, you know, you are absent from God. The people in purgatory have that same, uh, that same agony of that absence. The difference is, as we saw, um, I posted on all souls, a quote from St. Catherine of Siena, they have this incredible joy while they're in this excruciating pain. Um, because of the absence of God, they they have this joy because they have hope and they know that they will at some point see God. So it's, you know, when you're talking about the fires of purgatory and the fires of hell, I think a lot of people get confused and kind of don't understand it. It, it, the, the, it is a fire in both places. The difference is hope versus not having hope. And it's really interesting. I was thinking the other day about this, that there there are four domains in which human beings can exist. There's heaven, there's hell, there's earth, us, you know, the living, and there's purgatory. 
And in two of these places, there's hope. And in two of these places, there's not hope. So the the two places where there's hope is on earth and in purgatory. And you say, wait a minute, Anne, that's crazy. That means what you're saying is that that the two domains where there is no hope is hell and heaven. And that's exactly right. There's no hope in heaven. Do you know why there's no hope in heaven? Because you have achieved the thing for which you hope. Exactly. There's nothing to hope for. You already have absolutely everything. You have God. You have everything. There is nothing to hope for. And so there is no hope in heaven. You know what else there isn't in heaven? This is a mind blower. There's no faith in heaven. Because you have faith for that which you cannot see. And if once you have the thing, once you have God, and you can see him, literally, you have the beatific vision, you don't need to have faith anymore. So isn't that amazing? There's no faith in heaven. There's no hope in heaven. So what is the, what is the third which scripture tells us is the highest of the of the three those are the three theological virtues right or the, yeah the three theological virtues what's the only one that remains in heaven that's charity of course and anybody that's who that's love yeah any, anybody who's <laughs> ever been married and think back to before they were married and they have faith that they will find the right person at some point they have intense desire and hope for finding that person but once you're married you don't have the faith you're going to find them and the hope to find them you have the person but the love remains yeah. Uh, that's very romantic, super nerd. That's very nice. I never thought about it that way. Yep, I already, I already have it. I don't need faith and I don't need hope because I've got you right here in front of me. Oh, what a thing to say, gentlemen. Are you listening? That's oh, ladies too. But gentlemen, what a thing to say. What a thing to say to your beloved wife. I have no faith and I have no hope because I have, I have you. So I don't need either, either of those two. In with regards to, with regards to marriage. But we still need those two things. We still need faith and we still need hope as long as we're here on earth. So, Well, I was just taking the scriptural reference to heaven being the, uh, the heavenly uh, bridegroom, the, the heavenly mm. wedding feast. So it's just, you know, we have something called wedding down or, or marriage down here too. So, Yep. Excellent point. Very nice. Well, do you want to call it a show? I think we can call it a show. We're at an hour and a half okay. now. All right, uh, all right. Email address uh, for the podcast where you can send feedback, comments, suggestions, or tell me why the F-35 is a complete turkey or anything else about what I talked <laughs> about. Podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors, um, which in- I would imagine this includes everybody who might have passed away who was a benefactor. And that's not counting the uh, the folks who passed away in the last week. There is a Requiem Mass for them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, these masses are every single day. The masses for Anne's benefactors are every single day. And then once a week, there is a Requiem Mass. Please join your intentions with the priests offering these masses. And please pray for the priests as well. They are going to have to answer in judgment for their lives. And hopefully their purgations will be short if, and hopefully they, <clears throat> excuse me, unless they can go straight to heaven. In which case, they're going through a lot of purgation now, mainly at the hands of other Catholics. But I digress. Yeah. Um, the Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, uh, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more details. And that's what Richard and Dana did, sending something in through the P.O. Box. And uh, actually, Dana marked it specifically for Tiny Princess. So <laughs> we'll take care of that one accordingly. And uh, via PayPal, Camille and Donald. 
uh, and Richard. I forget. No, I said Richard already. Um, thank you very much for that. And uh, Matthew seventeen twenty. We haven't talked much about <laughs> that. A couple. Well, I don't want I don't want it to be a one a one issue podcast. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say you've done a really good job these last two podcasts, not going off on uh, the bishops and white. Right, right, right. I'm trying. I'm trying. But the Matthew seventeen twenty intention is um, full fasting, a twenty four hour fast twice a week. I generally do Tuesdays and Fridays, but you know you can move it around if you want. And the way I phrase the intention is thusly that. Anti-Pope Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified. That Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger be publicly acknowledged as having been the one and only living Pope all this time since he was validly elected in 2005. That Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday after a after an extensive purgation uh, achieve the beatific vision. And likewise, that Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of what he has done, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. Anything less than that is suboptimal. Got to get both of them. As much as we, you know, in the earthly sense, as much as we just just despise, I mean, that's the only word you can use right now. As much as we despise in the earthly sense, anti-Pope Bergoglio you have you have to pray for him because you you don't want anyone, including your worst enemy, to end up in hell. It's just you you cannot wish that on anyone. And what I find so fascinating, and I think we've talked about this once before, is it occurred to me, you know, even even if let's let's say that anti Pope Bergoglio is in fact the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, it's it's possible. God makes no one damned. It is possible that even the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist could somehow repent and um, and achieve the beatific vision because he's a human being. And by definition, there is no such thing as a human being who is just born damned. He's He's in a state of reprobation right now, obviously. He doesn't have to die that way. Even if, even if he proves to be the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, there's even hope for him. And so if there's, if there's hope for him, there's hope for all of us. And in charity, uh, we, we have to pray. We can't just stop with the whole fix the situation in Rome. You have to take it all the way to the ultimate conclusion, and that is, Bergoglio achieving the beatific vision and Ratzinger achieving the beatific vision. You can't stop short. It has to be all the way through, all the way to the end. Um, go big or go home and give it to Our Lady Undoer of Knots and trust in her intercession and it can be done. But we have to be praying for this. And, you know, I, I just... I don't know how many people are praying for this. We, we all get so wrapped up in fighting against anti-Pope Bergoglio that you, but you cannot lose sight of that. You you have to pray for a soul and even he, even he can die in a state of grace, even after all of this. Which is why, by the way, it's, it's considered a mortal sin to actually wish the damnation of somebody. And yeah. of course the phrase go to hell is typically not said with the full intention and, and malice of forethought of saying, I really want to see you in hell. Because when you when you wish somebody's damnation, you are explicitly saying to Christ, "I want your blood to have been shed in vain." 
Yeah. That's not yeah. going to go very well at your, at your uh, judgment. If that's, if that's your attitude. And that's really tough. I mean, especially with all of these, you know, these sodomite abusers, child molesters, all this, I mean, it's really difficult to not let that creep into your mind and say, you know, these, these damn boy rapists should burn in hell. Well, so should I. So, you know, be careful with that. And like super nerd said, man, if you, if you start talking about how there are people that you want to go to hell and you look forward to them burning there and so on and so forth, you're just think about what you're saying about our Lord's death on the cross. Just think about what that means. That's, that's the problem with so many of us is we just don't think things through in a, in a logical progression. That's um, why I have the tongue in cheek phrase. I hope that such and such is in heaven before the sun sets. I mean, I've, I've used that phrase on the show talking about uh-huh. Hillary Clinton uh, and probably a bunch of other people on that side of the aisle. But the point is I don't, doesn't matter how despicable of a human being you are. I hope you get to heaven. I don't want anyone. Why should Satan get a single soul? And if you look at the in, in the Gospels in the in the Passion, uh, right up to the end, Christ is making overtures to Judas the whole time, saying, yep. "You know, don't don't follow through on this act. The, the graces, the, the the forgiveness is there if you will only ask." And yep. it's it's that realization. Some of the doctors, of the church say, is what drove him to suicide. Is he realized I had had it the whole time, and he would not. He was so mad at himself that he he refused to to ask. I don't know. It's hard to tell, but we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. So and there you go. There's the Matthew seventeen twenty intention. Please join with me in that. And for my wife, I know she's looking at this saying, you guys started the wrap up five minutes ago. What's all this stuff <laughs> still going on? Every, every, every time she listens to it, she's at the end. It's like, why is there still five minutes left? You guys are wrapping up. Sorry, what? super mommy. Okay, <laughs> we're done now. <laughs> Until next time, I am still super nerd. And I'm still Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. Semper Fi. Oh, by the way, <laughs> okay, not a joke. I meant to say this and I forgot until just now. Um, it, it, we didn't plan the topic based on this, but before, between now and when the next show comes out, it will be Veterans Day here in the United States. And the day before is the Marine Corps anniversary. So Semper Fi for all of my Marine Corps. Well, I wasn't in the Marine Corps. I just gave those guys a ride. But um, nah. <laughs> Semper Fi to all the Marines. And uh, I really am gone now. This is super nerd. I'm out. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless.